You're in the right room if you're looking for a uh, presentation, the third in our four-part series on politics and politicians. Our topic is Menachem Begin, the Peace Treaty and a New Israel. And uh, as with all of our class series, we are recording. Grendel in the back has been uploading to iTunes. So I'm getting emails from people who are in our group who are traveling asking how do they listen to the program. So do you all know how to get to iTunes? If you have a smartphone, you just, particularly if you have an, uh, an Apple phone, there is an there is a podcast, you go to the podcast, you go to iTunes, there's a little search box, and you type in OCCSP, and you will find our uh, programs up there. Um, what program is this? Let's see, it was 19 as of yesterday, and you've done two more. So this is uh, 22 now for you? Minus two unofficial, so it's 19. Has anybody attended all 19 public lectures? You're close. 18. You've done 18. Okay, the Cornells right here at 18. So they are going for the grab bag gift at our closing next week, which reminds me, if you haven't signed up for the closing, please do. Anybody else have like more than uh, 12 lectures in their bag? You probably do. Shulkoff's, Faith Herschler, okay. We'll see how many people, how many gifts we have. You may get something at the closing. It's not over. You could basically, if you kidnap the Cornells, lock them away for a week, you could potentially take over. Okay, so uh, we're going to do Menachem Begin shortly. Politics of Survival, Jordan. So we'll be back here tomorrow for um, our uh, third in our, our three-part series of Israel's Neighbors. So that series will be over tomorrow. And then um, Thursday, Israel and the Toughest Neighborhood in the World, which is a repeat lecture at Cal State University, Long Beach. Friday night, Temple Batyam, from Truman to Trump. If you want to go to dinner, you can go. You've got to sign up and pay, but the program is free. Shabbat at CBI, Jewishness in the Jewish State. And then Sunday, Ultra-Orthodoxy and Anti-Zionism Temple Judea. So uh, there's a lot coming up. I, I was trying to figure out why I feel extra tired this year. And there's two reasons. Number one is I have a one-and-a-half-year-old and a, a three-and-a-half-year-old. And the second is we added like a whole class series for you just because you had so many topics. So we have a whole separate class. And we added one, two lectures to the other class series. Usually we have six programs altogether. But you've got eight, 11, so, you know, I'm getting tired. But everybody else is hanging in there. Are you guys hanging in there? Are you enjoying this, Scholar? Should we invite him back? I'm trying to figure out what he's going to do for our group when we go to Israel. I mean, dance, sing, what do you do? Like, nothing? Okay. So that's enough from me. I'm, did anybody show up to the Orange County Board of Rabbis who shouldn't have been there today? Twelve people show No, no, I'm saying people who weren't rabbis. They didn't show up? They got locked out by the gate? Anybody show up? No. Okay. I'm glad you showed up today. Please join me welcoming Professor Paul Lips for his, wow, second to last week here in Orange County. Something like that. Good. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. He's always got a sense of humor, hasn't he? Uh, he told me I didn't have to come tonight. That's why I came late. He said, there's a big APAC meeting. And he said, no one's going to come. But about 10 minutes ago, he phoned up and said, I have to come. So that's why we came late. Uh, but I, but you, thank you for turning up. I've been watching the impeachment. It's kind of interesting. You know, I've never watched that sort of stuff before. Um, but it was... Uh, they make good, some of them are very erudite speakers. I mean, they do it well. They've got the, the screen at the back, and they really, it's very professional. In Israel, we don't really have stuff like that. 
Okay, we're talking about Menachem Begin. Um, very interesting guy. Very interesting guy. He really broke the norm of Israeli society. Remember, until 1977, it was almost unimaginable that someone who wasn't from the old labor Zionist uh, elite could get into politics. And uh, as I mentioned in one of the earlier sessions when I was speaking about David Ben-Gurion, um, David Ben-Gurion had really tried to marginalize Menachem Begin. And there, were, there was very good reason. I mean, not that I support what he, the way he spoke about Menachem Begin, where he said, you know, the man who sits next to Mr. Bader, he said that for about 20 years. But we must remember in the 1940s, there was almost a civil war between the left-wing militia, Jewish militia, Haganah and the Palmach, and the right-wing Jewish militia, the Irgun and the Lehi Stern. And really, in, in the, and we'll talk about a bit, little bit about this evening, it was an unbelievably tough situation. And although today in Israel, you know, we still talk about the divided society, it's nowhere nearly as bad as it was in the 1940s, and the state hadn't yet been established. And looking back, when you read the, the literature, looking back, uh, you, although today we can feel, you know, we wish things were better, you know, we really would like everyone dancing the horror in the middle of Tel Aviv or something, but there's not enough space in Tel Aviv, so we couldn't do it. But it's really a very interesting phenomenon to see that um, as we look at the development of Israeli society, with, with its divisions, it, it isn't a civil war potential kind of situation. So that was why uh, the leftists looked at, it, at the rightists, at the right group, as if they were responsible. The right group looked at the left group and said, you're not allowing us into any position of power. So when David Ben-Gurion, uh, sorry, Menachem Begin, sorry. Menachem Begin, uh, I'm a David Ben-Gurion groupie. So uh, when Menachem Begin um, came into power in 1977, he started a whole new Israel, which is what Israel is basically today. Now, there have been labor leaders in between from 77 today, but the nature of Israeli society has pretty much been formed by Menachem Begin, but not in all realms. So that's what I'm going to be looking at. I'm going to speak about a right-wing leader, someone who believed in the greater Israel, but he had concepts which are not quite fully accepted in contemporary Israeli society. So that's the direction I'm, I'm essentially going in. Um, just a little bit of background. Uh, born in 1913 in Brisk, which was then under Russia. 1921, Brisk comes under Poland. Now I just have to spend a few minutes speaking about Polish history. Because only if you understand Polish history can you understand the position of the Jews in Poland. Poland was a country that was divided in three dramatic moments at the end of the 18th century. And the major powers of the area, Russia, Austria-Hungary, and Germany, on their own initiative, essentially what we can imagine, took scissors and cut up Poland 
And Poland disappeared in three particular stages. Poland disappeared as an independent country, and the Polish people are under foreign rule until the First World War. As a result of that, when Poland came together, they'd had this, this the feeling of 120 years, more or less, of being a divided people under very different kind of empires. The, as we know, the Germans are very different from the Russians, and the Russians are very different from the Austro-Hungarians. By the way, also, people think that Austrians and Germans are the same. Not true. Very, very different. So although we speak, you know, we say German-speaking, Austrian-Hungarian, partly uh, German-speaking, the, there's tremendous tension. Now, the, the issue for us, as far as the Jewish population is concerned, is that when Poland was recreated, the Polish became ultra-nationalist. They, 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 xenophobic. They, they had to recreate their Polish memory um, and the other had absolutely no place. And the other was the Jew. 10% of the Polish population were Jewish. 30% of the Warsaw population were Jewish. So if we look at it from the position of the Polish peasant, and remember, most of the Poles were very low-level, poorly educated people, uh, partly because the, the empires didn't want to educate the population. I mean, Russia wasn't interested in creating an elite of Polish people, so they didn't give a damn about them. And the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians weren't much better. So this is the situation that the Jews find themselves in. And the Jews find themselves in Poland in a terrible kind of situation. And by the 1920s, there's a rise of anti-Semitism in Poland. 1927, you have a change of administration in Poland and a deep sense of anti-Semitism. This is the world that Menachem Begin grows up in. And to understand Menachem Begin, you have to understand that in a strange kind of way, and he even admitted it on one occasion that I know of, that he had imbibed his own nationalism from the Polish nationalism. Now, it sounds strange, because we kind of believe that if we dislike the rulers, that when we have an opportunity to rule, we're going to be different. But history often proves the opposite. History often proves that you look at the rulers, and the Polish rulers were powerful and very nationalistic, and so David Ben-Gurion imbibed in his own idea what nationalism all, is all about. It's not American. You, you people don't really have nationalism in the sense of Europe. You know, you, Americans, when they're dealing with Europe, it's hard to understand. Israelis kind of understand it better. But it, it, it's a very insular kind of nationalism, which is often the case. And um, Menachem Begin looks around at the Polish nationalist movement and says, ha-ha, I see how one succeeds in life. Because that's what he saw. A country which hadn't existed comes together. What's the story of Israel? It hadn't existed, and, but went, from the second temple it was there, and so you're creating it again. So in his own mind, although they're different realities, there's something common about these two situations. Now, 
Begin had certain tremendous advantages in his background. Uh, his father was uh, fluent in Hebrew, uh, fluent in five different languages, well immersed in religion. Now, these are going to be very important in the later development of Menachem Begin. Um, at the age of seven, he gave a speech in Hebrew. That's quite something. But he also knew Polish. You know, sometimes you have the situation where the only language you know is Yiddish or Hebrew or something like this. Here, it, what we are really finding is a different situation, and he, he's fluent in Hebrew at the age of seven. And he comes from quite a relaxed family. Um, the middle class in Poland in the 1920s is really not middle class as we understand it. It's just a little bit better off than the peasants. That's what early Polish middle class is about. But the Begin family are quite, quite well established. They had an unusual situation. They had two maids, one Jewish and one Polish. That was quite unusual. Uh, except for the very, very small uh, elite groups. So he's growing up in a fairly relaxed kind of environment. And as part of his training, he goes to the University of Warsaw and becomes a lawyer. Now, the interesting part about Menachem Begin as a lawyer, regardless of what political situation he found himself in, law was an ultimate value. So it's very interesting because some nationalists in various situations push law on the side. Law has no value to us. But Menachem Begin, although he was seen in Israeli society as a hardline right-winger, called terrorist, by the way, by members of the left party, and definitely called a terrorist by the British, he had a bounty on his head of uh, 10,000 pounds sterling. So he's perceived as this teller, this, this extreme kind of guy, but his background, uh, and particularly the legal part of his life, is going to become a very, very clear component when he gets into power. And he never forgets at any time the importance of law, which was interesting because Poland was pretty lawless, so he didn't take everything uh, from Polish nationalism. Now, what was his main development? At that time, in the Zionist leadership, uh, as we, we know, the central leaders are labor Zionists. Golda Meir, the whole crowd, you, you, from all, all, all perspectives. Uh, Herzl was not really a labor Zionist, but he wasn't all that far uh, from that perspective. But there was one Zionist leader who spoke the language, the image, of what Menachem Begin understood Zionism should be. And what Menachem Begin learned from Polish nationalism is that if you don't get anything in life unless you fight for it, it's not easy. And there was only one Zionist ideologue who ever spoke in a language which indicated that that is what life is about. And that was Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky comes from left wing, far right wing, far away from the essence of the, uh, of, of the other leaders, very independent in his thinking, um, didn't, didn't abide by the rules of the socialist Zionist 
uh, movement and in fact formed his own Zionist movement. He refused to be part of the, the, the general organization of Zionist thinkers. And Jabotinsky becomes very important for him. And here we find an interesting situation. Um, Menachem Begin looked at Jabotinsky as a father, a father figure. Um, but he disagreed with many components of Jabotinsky. So, you know, sometimes you have followers who, who kind of sheep kind of phenomenon. They're so impressed with the leader. But here we have uh, Menachem Begin, even as a young guy, listening to Jabotinsky um, and uh, not always agreeing with him, but that didn't disturb the relationship. And uh, Menachem Begin becomes leader of the Beitar youth movement, which in America you have a very small Beitar youth movement. Um, it's, it's really not nearly as big as you'd find in South Africa or in, in Australia. Certainly in, in France, the Beitar youth movement is strong. And what's the ideology of the Beitar youth movement? It's a combination of concepts. It has a military component in it. In the way that Habonim, I'm sure many of you know Habonim, the Habonim youth movement. Habonim youth movement, kind of the, the clothing is very relaxed and it's kibbutz oriented and kind of a lot of singing and dancing and very good youth movement. The, the Beitai youth movement is a registered, kind of a, a regimented youth movement. It's, a, it, it's doctrinaire. The booklets... I've studied the booklets. I wrote an article on the Zionist youth movements many years ago. Uh, the, 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 the booklets of Habonim are kind of like a scout manual. It's about getting badges and it's about doing ropes and things. Beitar wasn't interested in badges and ropes. Beitar was an ideological movement. It spoke early on in terms of the state, of the, Israel, the state of Israel would be both sides of the Jordan River. Now that's a pretty big area. Uh, it means it's from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River and over the Jordan River and the ideological basis of Shtegadot uh, Hayarden, two sides of the Jordan River, actually comes from the basis that in the biblical period there were two and a half tribes on the in the Jordanian area, what later became Transjordan, uh, or, or Jordan, which we'll be speaking about uh, tomorrow. The, um, so this is the Beitar uh, ideology, very ideological. But Beitar has within it some very interesting other concepts, which are Jabotinskian ideas. For example, there's the idea of Hadar, dignity, um, self-control, uh, uniform. You know, the, the idea of the uniform, a regimentation of uniform. Jabotinsky just, for example, um, wrote uh, that uh, when there were members of the Beitar who had contacts with, the, um, with Mussolini supporters, it wasn't clear at that time who Mussolini really was, but certain members of Beitar were sent to Italy, and Jabotinsky writes a letter and in the letter he says you have to be very dignified, and just going to the how dignified, what dignified was all about. He even writes in a certain place, when you're eating, don't put your elbows on the table. 
So it goes, it's that kind of level. What are we saying about Beitar? It's a very, very clearly documented kind of organization. They say what they, they believe, and the instructions are there all the time. Sorry, you were about to ask a question. Sorry? I was a member of Beitar. I was also. So <laughs> I was, most of my time I was Habonim, but I spent two years in Beitar. So good. So some of us are Lansmanit. This is, this is who Menachem Begin is. He's, he starts at his anger to the British, was so great, uh, we talk now about the 1930s, that he threw stones at the British embassy. Now, the Poles weren't too happy with throwing stones at the British embassy by a young Zionist. Sorry, by a young Zionist. That wasn't such a good idea. So he was taken into jail, and he was going to have a long, long sentence, but they managed to get him out somehow or other. This is a fighter. Ben-Gurion shows at a very early stage he's a fighter. And as time goes by, what happens is that he, um, he's too active in his Zionist ideology. Uh, comes the beginning of the uh, Second World War, the Russians, who are in that area of Poland, find that this is a dangerous fellow, and they pick him up, and he's given a trial, and the trial was that he would be incarcerated for seven years. Now, he writes about it in, he wrote two books. His, the second book that he wrote, uh, well, the first book actually, was about the, what happened in Russian prisons. He was there for about a year, which had a tremendous effect on him. And many, many years later, when he was prime minister, he was going to demand fair treatment for prisoners, even terrorists. Okay, so it's interesting that he carries on, he's imbibing different ideas uh, as he's uh, going along. Fortunately for him, in 1941, the um, Russian authorities released Polish prisoners on condition that they joined the Polish army under General Anders. Uh, Anders was the leader of, the, of the, the Polish army, and the Polish army was actually sent, part of the Polish army was sent to various areas of which the division under General Anders was sent to the Middle East. And Menachem Begin was part of it. In the, the Anders army, there were 70,000 soldiers, 5,000 Jews. Now, when the Anders army arrived in the Middle East, uh, Menachem Begin deserted. He said, I've had enough of this Polish stuff. Thank you for releasing me from jail. Bye-bye. He comes, and from that time onwards, he finds himself very much in conflict with the Zionist elite. The Zionist elite, the people like uh, David Ben-Gurion, um, were looking for ways of compromise with the British. The perspective of the left side at that time was, we don't like the British, and a little while later, after, at the end of the war, we know that the British are stopping people coming from the displaced persons camps uh, to, to Palestine, but um, let's try and work with them. Uh, 
The right-wing perspective, led at this time by Menachem Begin, who is no longer head of Beitar, the youth movement, but as head of the militia, the Irgun, Irgun Lumi, the right-wing uh, militia, um, his, his perspective is, in this moment of history, the British are our enemy. Not for all time, but the British are our enemy, and if we're going to receive a state, if we're ever going to get a state, the only way we're going to do it is by being in direct conflict uh, with the uh, British government. So the British government see this guy as one of the most dangerous people around, and as I mentioned earlier, defined as a terrorist, if you could um, uh, capture him, you would get uh, a gift of uh, 10,000 pounds sterling, which in those days was an absolute fortune, an unbelievable amount of money. So Menachem Begin had to hide. And he hides in an area in Ramat Aviv, contemporary Ramat Aviv, uh, in, uh, in a little area in the, between the roof and the, the ceiling. That's where he hid most of the time. When he had to get out, he dressed like a rabbi. And the British didn't think a rabbi could be a terrorist, okay? So he managed to walk around every now and again. And obviously, uh, at the, as time is going by, um, Menachem, the British eventually leave uh, the state of Israel, uh, what has become Israel, and Menachem Begin says, now I know what, what I really want to do. Now I want to get into politics. In politics, he is considered the most resilient politician that Israelis have ever found, ever had. The story is amazing. 120 members in the Knesset. The first election, 1949, he gets 14 seats. Marginal political party. The second election, three days later, the party, Chirut, it was called Chirut and later Likud, Chirut is freedom. The freedom party gets eight seats. So anyone looking at politics at the time would say, End of the party. He goes through nine elections, slowly but surely getting more and more and more seats until he eventually, in 1973, gets to 39. Now, why does he have such a limited amount of support in the early years? The reason is that not only was he in conflict with the left-wing Zionist movements, Ben-Gurion people like that, but he, um, um, he, his, his antagonism with them reached unbelievably difficult situations. The famous King David Hotel, some of you may have heard of it, the, it was a, a very complex affair. By the way, until a few years ago, it was still being discussed in Israel who was to blame and who or gave the orders. We don't have to get into the nitty-gritty of it, but essentially what the idea was, uh, the Menachem Begin and, and his crowd uh, said that because the British are the enemy, let us blow up the King David Hotel. What's the King David Hotel at that time? It was the headquarters of the British uh, uh, civilian authority, filled with British, Arabs, and Jews. The bomb is left there. There's ongoing discussion on 
Initially, it was going to be a combined opposition with the left and the right. In the final analysis, only the right wing put the bomb there. The, the whole thing blew up, and in the uh, figures that we have, um, uh, quite a, an amazing situation, 91 people were killed, of whom 17 were Jews. So when Begin later gets into politics, many, many people in the country say that Begin is a dangerous man. He kills Jews. And there was another affair, the famous Deir Yassin. Deir Yassin was an Arab village on the outskirts of Jerusalem. The right wing went in, killed, I won't even try and deal with the figures because the figures are so contradictory. As a result of that, there was a scramble of the Arab population, the start of the Palestinian refugee situation, essentially starts with the event of Deir Yassin. The Arabs, the Palestinians of the area outside of Jerusalem, it was quite an active um, village. They were stopping uh, food and supplies coming into Jerusalem, so they were a problematic group in, in the war. But that brings about the mass departure of a very significant number of Palestinians. And the leftists blamed uh, Begin for that. And Begin said, look, you should say thanks to me. I got rid of the Arab population. The Arabs were 750,000. In 1949, there were 156,000, of whom the right wing said, it's because of us. And the third event, which had caused this tremendous antagonism to Begin, was the famous Altalena affair. Altalena was the uh, name of, the, of when Jabotinsky wrote one of his many books. He didn't sign himself Jabotinsky, he said Altalena. That was his, whatever you call the, the name that writers sometimes give if they don't give their original name. And the Altalena boat issue was very, very problematic. Very problematic. It was a boat for the right-wing militias brought to Tel Aviv port. Uh, and um, in the Israel's War of Independence, there was a tremendous fear uh, from the Ben-Gurion crowd, the Labour Zionists, that, um, those, that those arms and ammunition on the Altalena boat would be used to divide the Jewish people. The long and the short of it, 16 members of the Irgun were killed in a military conflict between the leftist militia and the rightist militia. So the point is, I'm making, that when you get to the, the uh, Menachem Begin, the political leader, there is a lot of anger existing in Israeli society and a lot of fear of Menachem Begin. Now, Menachem Begin is consistent he looks at the world, and his worldview, until his dying day, is that the world hates the Jewish people. Doesn't matter how you phrase it. Doesn't matter what country you're talking about. He had, and this is very much the influence of his Polish background, nationalism, as he understood it, is not a concept of compromise, but a concept of conflict. That's what he had picked up from the Poles, and that's what he believed Zionist nationalism should be all about. And among his enemies, very much Arabs, found it very hard to trust them until he signed the peace agreement with Anwar Sadat. So 
even very consistent conservative people can change their minds at a certain time in history. The British are the enemy, and he was actually personal non grata in Britain for many years. If he had gone there, he would have been picked up and, and sent off to jail because the British found it impossible to forgive him for an extended period of time. But the other enemy was clearly the Germans. His mother and father and brother had been killed at the time that he was with General Anders coming uh, to Palestine. The Germans were the enemy. And in 1952, there was yet another stage of this deep tension within Israeli society, a battle for survival according to different concepts. Nachum Goldman, the great American Jewish leader, had decided that it would be worthwhile discussing certain issues with the German government, West German government. And that issue was the reparations. Now, the German reparations issue is a major factor in the early economic development of the state of Israel. But it has a problem. You're taking money from the Germans. From Menachem Begin's perspective, German or Nazi makes no difference. All the same. From the Labour Zionist perspective, from Ben-Gurion's perspective, it's a different crowd, different government, uh, different leaders in Germany are no longer the Nazis, although they were clearly Nazi uh, in the civil service and things, but it's a different group. And so develops this massive conflict over reparations. Two perspectives, competing narratives. The Ben-Gurion point of view is 1952, we are in a desperate situation. Who have we, who's our country? a figure that we've co I've quoted a number of times, one out of every four Israeli citizens is a Holocaust survivor. They need help. Immigrants coming in from Yemen, 1949, 1950, those 50,000 immigrants from Yemen. Odd bods, people from all around the world are coming in, the rise of Arab nationalism, the ongoing impact of the Second World War and anti-Semitism. Israel is desperate to provide accommodation, food, uh, jobs, whatever it is, for the immigrant population. In addition, it was a very, very harsh winter, 1950-51, very, very harsh, one of the harshest winter that uh, Israel's ever had. David Ben-Gurion says, Nachum Goldman has worked out a plan. And what are reparations? It's very important to remember what reparations are because it's been misrepresented. Reparations was not compensation for lives lost. Reparation was money for, essentially, it started off for property that was taken and at a later stage for work in concentration camps and labor camps that you hadn't been paid for. It was a, a very bureaucratic process. And the leftists say, 1952, we have to move forward economically. And we've got all these people who depend on us. Menachem Begin says, no go. Not interested. And so there's a debate in the Knesset. And the debate in the Knesset gives us some very, very interesting uh, terminology. I just want to quote exactly. Um, the, he makes a speech. 
in the Knesset. And he totally opposes any money from West Germany under any condition. And he makes a famous uh, speech, uh, which is the following. Um, I have an ongoing trauma with Germany. It covers everything I do. I shall live with it until my dying day. I cannot forget what the Germans did to our people. I shall never shake the hand of a German, never. And he spent much of his life trying to avoid it. At a certain occasion, for political reasons, he did shake a few German hands, but even then, apparently uh, very reluctantly. Now, over the actual reparations agreement, during the debate in the Knesset, it was not the Knesset building which exists today, it was a smaller building which exists in the, uh, downtown uh, Jerusalem, he makes the following uh, issue. There's a demonstration outside the Knesset. It's getting extremely violent. The, the right-wing group, the, the Begin crowd, are throwing stones into the Knesset, trying to disturb the functioning of the parliament when a, a, a vote was going to be held on whether to accept money for reparations or not. And Menachem Begin says the following. The police, Israeli police, have grenades which contain gas made in Germany, the same gas which was used to kill our mothers and fathers. Five or six years after the end of Shoah, of the Holocaust. This is explosive stuff. Okay, it's not just we dislike the police, not that. It's the imagery is so powerful and so tense in a country with so many Holocaust survivors that it looked once again that this thing was going to blow up. And therefore, the failure of Menachem Begin in the early stages, although it was looked at as if this guy will never get anywhere in politics, Menachem Begin looked at everything in a different way. Life is a slow improvement of reality. That's essentially how he looked at things. And he was prepared to go on for the long haul. And we'll see it uh, a little later when he uh, eventually has to deal with the, uh, the uh, Arab governments, with, with Egypt. So, so what we're finding there is that he's pretty much in the opposition. Oh, sorry. Um, he's, um, you know, Ari, I need a bigger desk, yeah, I'm sorry, but otherwise you're a good guy. Uh, the, um, what, what's happening is that he's slowly improving his political position. He's still very much on the, on the, uh, on the wing, on the, on the outside of society. 1967, Six-Day War is a pivotal moment for him. Levi Eshkol, then Prime Minister, trying to get a coalition, a, a large coalition in the government, invites Menachem Begin into the coalition with an unusual title, Minister Without Portfolio. Now, in Israeli politics, when you call someone Minister Without Portfolio, it means, in very, very colloquial Hebrew, a pain in the butt, but we have to include them somehow. 
So everyone says, ah, Levi Eshkol, such a clever guy. Yeah, and he's a bright fella. Uh, we'll, he's, he's getting Menachem Begin in to form a coalition. But Menachem Begin, uh, what are you going to do? Menachem Begin was, acted very astutely. He normally wouldn't have accepted the position. But he knew that once he was a minister in the government, he had established his legitimacy, which is a very important issue in politics. Politicians who think they're going to jump into politics and succeed immediately, forget about it. It's not going to be a long-term successful program. If one realizes that politics, like so many other things in life, is a long-term process, then you succeed. And this is where Menachem Begin was. He realizes that until he received legitimacy, he was going to get absolutely nowhere. So that is really the background for why in 1973, his party, called the Likud party at that time, already has 36 seats. 1977 election comes about, and Menachem Begin becomes prime minister. He succeeded. Long-term patience of a marginal leader, unpopular, um, uh, negated from discussion, eventually in 1977, becomes a prime minister. In Israeli uh, political society, when you give a lecture on Israeli politics, this is called the earthquake. And it's a genuine earthquake. It's a major political earthquake. By the way, Menachem Begin didn't do all that well. It was a whole arrangement of a coalition government. There was a new party formed by Yigal Yadin, the famous archaeologist. And Yigal Yadin took his 15 votes and went with Menachem Begin's crowd. And Menachem Begin managed to form a government. So in real terms, when you look at hard facts, it wasn't though suddenly in 1977 Menachem Begin's party had jumped so much. It jumped a little bit. But it was the formation of the coalition at that time. By the way, at that time, the Labour Party had gone through crisis, Rabin Perez conflicts. We'll speak about it uh, uh, next week when I speak, uh, deal with um, Yitzhak Rabin. Tremendous conflict within the Labour Party, which clearly helped uh, Menachem Begin and the Likud. Now, what's he going to do? This is for the first time in his life when he, as an ideological leader, can implement his ideas. And he's got very, very clear ideas, which with his very sophisticated legalistic mind, he's developed over an extended period of time. This isn't a fly-by-night phenomenon. Well-planned, well-analyzed. And there's a number of issues which are absolutely crucial for him. He's been looking closely at Israeli society. He's been part of Israeli society. He's understood that the world is changing, by the way, which the Labour Zionists were not quite astute uh, as, as he was in terms of global phenomenon. And therefore, he develops essentially a three or four part plan. Firstly, the old days of socialism are over, no longer valid. Now, he did not reject socialist ideas totally. This is the astute legal mind. Some people say, we're now capitalists, laissez-faire capitalists, no more socialism. Not Menachem Begin. His sophisticated brain said, certain parts of socialism are very good for the state of Israel. 
which we still have in Israel today, um, affordable health care, uh, free national education. We have some private schools, but it's essentially still free. Um, there's there, uh, national insurance policies, a whole lot of things which had existed in the earlier period. In some cases, thanks very much to Golda Meir, he retained. But basically, he realized the world was now a capitalist world. The labor Zionists who had imagined that the Allies would be the communists, but by 1953, because of Stalin, had forgotten about that. Menachem Begin realized that you have to be allied with the capitalist Western world in the economic concepts. So this, by the way, is important. It doesn't happen immediately. Certainly by the 1980s, you see Israel becoming an effervescent uh, capitalist uh, kind of country. The second part that he is very clear about, where the labor Zionists had been something between non-religious and anti-religious, although they had had cooperation with the political party, the modern Orthodox party, but essentially labor Zionism had no place for religion. From Menachem Begin's perspective, the very presence of the state of Israel being in where it is, not Uganda, not Madagascar, not Galveston, Texas, not Argentina, four of the 23 suggestions of where the state of Israel should be, it's in its place because this is the biblical homeland. And what is the biblical homeland? Biblical homeland isn't the coastal plain, Tel Aviv, Haifa, Ashdod, and Ashkelon. The biblical homeland is Hebron and Jericho and uh, Nablushchem. That's the biblical homeland. So he is a maximalist, and he bases his maximalism on very, very clear religious ideas and unlike many Israeli leaders, and I've said it often, whenever I see an Israeli leader going to the Kotel, my question is, which assistant is, has a kippah, kippah in his back pocket? Because the leader certainly doesn't have. Menachem Begin, very, very respectful of religion. Very respectful. A religious man himself, walking to Shomer Shabbat, walks to Beit Knesset, understands the importance of religion, understands those Haredim who he had earlier in earlier life had contact with in Poland. Poland, the, the Hasidic movement is, is, uh, comes out of Poland and Ukraine. And therefore, what we're finding here is that Israel moves from being uh, a society very ambivalent about religion to a society, at least from the leadership, very much respecting religion. And the third component is very much um, the greater Israel concept. So it's not just the land is because that's in the Bible, but there's a need for the changing of the political idea. And from the perspective of the greater Israel, in Hebrew, Eretz Israel Hashlema, the bigger extended Israel, the borders could only be from the Jordan to the Mediterranean. And even at that stage, the territory in the country of Jordan was given up. So from the Menachem Begin perspective, 
Israel had already relinquished what is really part of the biblical homeland where the two and a half tribes had existed uh, in an earlier period of history. So this is a dramatic change in Israeli society. Those Israelis who opposed Begin were shocked. And as we know from the Vietnam period in America, one heard in 1977 people saying, I can't live in this country. This isn't, the, this isn't the Israel that I came to. Uh, I came to kibbutz, socialist, egalitarian society. This is something totally different. But the interesting part is although this is the real Menachem Begin, there was something else inside him which was very important. And that was the legalistic side. Looking at the Palestinians, and he said very clearly, there will be no Palestinian state. The Camp David Accords of 1979 speak about an autonomous area for the Palestinians, not a Palestinian state. But David Ben-Gurion, at the same time that he is perceived in Israeli society, possibly correctly, as a hardline right-winger, he believes that there should be full rights for the Palestinian population. Now, today in Israel, the right wing doesn't talk about it. It isn't part of the discussion. No one mentions it. So here's an interesting situation. The ideological man, at the same time, understanding legal rights of human beings, very much influenced by his own experience in Poland and in the Russian jail, he knew what it was like to be the underdog, and therefore, with as much as he was petrified of the possible dangers of a Palestinian state, he said they, as human beings, have full civil rights. Some of his supporters were totally shocked. What are you talking about? If you're a hardliner, be a hardliner. But he's a hardliner of a different kind. And then comes the uh, um, period of the peace accord with Anwar Sadat. As suspicious as he was of the Arabs, and he remained consistent in terms of his opposition to any kind of Palestinian state, he, as he got older, and I don't know if age does this to all of us, became just a little bit of a softy, softened some of the ideological stuff. By the way, the young Beitar members were very angry with him. And he starts to genuinely speak about peace, which was not a, a word that he used on too many occasions in the past. And when Anwar Sadat starts speaking about, you know, I really um, want to come to Jerusalem and, and meet the Israelis, um, it was very, very clear that uh, uh, this was an opening for Menachem Begin and the fact that the Camp David Peace Accord with, with Egypt was signed was, was a combination of leaders. Menachem Begin, on the one hand, Ezer Weizmann, the former Minister of Defense and Chief of the Air Force, who had been kind of a moderate rightish, and Moshe Dayan. So he cleverly brought in Moshe Dayan, who was a member of the Labour Party. And he brings him into the Likud party to ensure that when there would be a vote in the Knesset, 
it would get a majority. And the reason the agreement for Camp David, the agreement with Egypt, actually came about was because, not because of the Likud party supported, but the leftist party supported. Major change in his way of looking at the world. This is interesting part about ideolo ideological people. Some ideological people are ideological till the dying day. Some ideological people at a certain moment of history say, well, there's something else going on in the world, and we have to belong to it. So he has this ongoing, long period of relationship with Anwar Sadat, very, very insistent on ensuring that all the regulations uh, would be carried out but causes a major, major division within Israeli society. What are the Camp David Accords all about? You give back all of Sinai. Now, for people on the right wing who had spoken for years and years and years about the security of the state of Israel depends on land mass. Golan Heights guard you from the north. West Bank, Janine, Samaria, guards you from Jordan. Sinai guards you from Egypt. Remember, Egypt was Israel's major enemy. It's not what happened, how we look at it now. Egypt was the equivalent of the day's Iran in Israeli society. And the idea of the Sinai was the airplanes who, which leave the, near Alexandria, near, just on the other side of the, of the uh, Suez Canal, it, it takes a certain number of minutes to get to the highly populated areas of Israel. That was seen as a buffer. It's seen as a buffer against the uh, Egyptian Air Force. And Menachem Begin is prepared to give up Sinai. Totally out of context of the Menachem Begin who the Israeli population had seen in 1977. Not only is that, but there were Jewish settlements in Sinai, near the Gaza Strip, just on the, on the southern border of the Gaza Strip. And he, in a very, very dramatic week of Israeli society, sends in the Israeli army to physically remove the settlers from northern Sinai. Who are those settlers? The very supporters of Menachem Begin, Politically, They were the people who had gone down to Sinai. They were the people who believed in the greater Israel concept. So here's there's this moment of history when the right wing who had voted Menachem Begin into power are actually, those people are being removed by the Israeli army on the demands, on the instructions of their right wing hero. By the way, uh, ideologically in the world, right-wing heroes are big, big heroes. Left-wing heroes, we're not talking about the communist left, left-wing heroes are not as, as important in the hero image. There's something about different kind of images which political groups have in history. Right-wings are very, very uh, fervent about, about their, uh, their, their heroes. Um, so this is a, a very important issue. In the 1982 election, the second election that Menachem Begin comes in power, the story changes dramatically. Um, Golda, 
not understanding military issues. Menachem Begin, not understanding military issues. Very similar situation. Uh, Mike, is it Mike? Uh, uh, sorry, Mike. Mike said this to me the other day. So it's his idea. So I hadn't thought of it like that, so thank you very much. Very, very similar kind of situations. And what happens is there a combination of factors. What we haven't mentioned and was actually not spoken about in Israeli society is just as Golda was very ill, but people didn't know about it. Menachem Begin was also very ill. And you know, when I started many years ago, kind of really trying to get into the, the, the inner workings, the kishkas of, of, of political leaders, of Israeli political leaders in particular, I looked very, very closely at the amount of days that Menachem Begin had been ill. And he had a heart attack and he carried on working. And then he fell at a certain time and he was walking with a walking stick. He was an ill, Ill man. So what he has as we start his second career is he is an ill man, very problematic. The, the first Lebanon War, 1982, that I was involved in, is totally confusing to him. The Minister of Defense, Arik Sharon, realizing that Menachem Begin really doesn't understand what's going on in the military realm, speaks about that we're only going into Lebanon up to 40 kilometers. Menachem Begin thinks that it's the end of the war, it's just a, a military activity. Suddenly Israel finds itself in its own Vietnam, which is the uh, Lebanon war that starts in uh, 1982 and takes a long time uh, before we get out. So Menachem Begin with the Kahan Report, which is the Commission of Inquiry, there have been commissions of inquiries after every war, the Kahan Report says the following, Arik Sharon is guilty. He fooled the government. He didn't tell the truth, okay? Um, and the Kahan Report says uh, Arik Sharon can never be Minister of Defense again, so that's why later he became Prime Minister. Uh, Israeli logic. Um, Begin takes responsibility. But Arik Sharon doesn't feel it. And so there's a great deal of tension between Arik Sharon and Menachem Begin. There's a lot of discussion what's really going on. But there's a third issue which some and, and uh, political scientists and people really in the know say was really the breaking point of Menachem Begin. And that was when his wife, Eliza, died. Now, Eliza and Menachem Begin, unlike some of our other leaders, had a very, very close and dear relationship. Eliza suffered from asthma, serious asthma. And what Menachem Begin apparently never forgave himself for was that when Eliza was ill and he went on a very important political mission to the United States, Eliza got, went into an even more dangerous situation and she died when he was away and he came back and never forgave himself. And in trying to understand human beings, it's very hard. Human beings aren't boxes. We're all a combination of different components. There is no doubt that his illness, the disaster of the 
Lebanon war, by the way, when outside the prime minister's office, there was a great loss of life, and every time an additional soldier died, people outside his office flipped the card, you know, like a, a football match or something, you know, flipped the card. 600, when it got to 681, he was apparently absolutely stricken by a war that he did not feel he was responsible for, but as prime minister, he took the responsibility. Therefore, he resigned. It was very difficult for Israeli society. He hadn't really prepared, as seems to happen quite often, he really prepared, hadn't prepared a number two. And essentially, overnight, he resigned. He said he could not carry on. And then for nine long years, Menachem Begin lives in a house for those of you who know where Yad Vashem is, there's, you can get to Yad Vashem on the main road next to Mount Herzl, or there's a little road behind. And he was in a very modest little home, having for a period of nine years, except for a few other occasions, contact with three or four people. His daughter moved in to be with him. His son, Benny Began, who became a active political leader at a later stage, and his personal secretary. They were the three people who basically had contact with them. The, I remember going past the apartment. The shutters were always down. It must have been very dark and gloomy inside. Every now and again, one would hear that he had a small party. So who were his friends? His friends, who those who had been in the right-wing underground before 1948. Those were people. By the way, Menachem Begin had good friends. Some Israeli politicians we know had very few friends, but he had good friends, and those people would come for quiet events. Eventually, at a certain stage, he moved to, uh, to Tel Aviv, and he lived in, uh, in, in total isolation, which the country found very difficult because you, know, you want your leaders to be around, even if they're not in power, you want them to consult, you want them to reinforce your, your political point of view, uh, but that uh, didn't happen. The, the last comment I wanna make about Menachem Begin is the museum. Museums are the most political components of any society, bar archeology. span Archeology is as political as you can get. Uh, in 1969, uh, a group of us students, poorly paid students, wanting somehow to put bread on the table, uh, we were excavating the southern wall. And it was pretty clear, we were told by the archaeologists, that every bit of Jewish evidence we get in the southern wall is good for Israeli politics. It means we, the Jews were there, that sort of stuff. Very political. Um, but the, uh, the other uh, reality was of politics is the museums. Israeli museums are fascinating. I mean, I, I've been to the Israeli museums again and again. Each museum says something about the human being. The um, Ben-Gurion Museum is uh, in Steiboke, two little huts. It's Ben-Gurion. The Rabin Museum, which we'll speak about more next week, is the Rabin Museum, which is a very, very powerful Fascinating museum, I go quite often. Uh, I find it very emotive, and it's very much what Rabin represents. 
as does the Begin Museum in Jerusalem. And the Begin Museum says some things very, very clearly that I really haven't quite yet related to, and in this I conclude. Um, I do talk too much, because I always want questions. I keep thinking I want to leave lots of time for questions, but the evenings are better than the, the uh, midday lunches, hopefully. The, um, the Begin Museum's fascinating. Firstly, there's some sections there, and it's amazing. He was an unbelievable orator. In the museum, they have excerpts of some of his speeches. He was amazing. By the way, as a child who gave a speech in Hebrew at seven, he seemed to very early on establish the ways of speeches. And speeches, as we know, in politics is, uh, is big stuff. And he was a powerful orator. Uh, but what I like most, and what I think says something about Begin, which I haven't yet mentioned, on this I conclude, in the Begin Museum, there are the actual pieces of furniture from his house. He and Elisa, when they lived in Tel Aviv, lived in an unbelievably modest three-bedroomed apartment, of which family members were sometimes staying with them, so there wasn't too much spare room. In some senses, that was the end of that generation. Tremendous amount of modesty. Lived very, very frugally. There was no waste of anything. Uh, people who were close to Menachem Begin, one of his closest friends was his driver. They were biggest buddies. And apparently Begin would consult with the driver what the people are thinking. Uh, he, they were, didn't rely apparently on public opinion polls. But the little, the bits of furniture that we see in the Begin Museum are so much the man. You sit on his chair, 10 minutes of sitting on is pretty much as my back can take there, not a very comfortable chair. Everything was modest. Everything was modest because from the perspective of Menachem Begin, the importance is not what you have, in your house, but what you can do, not only for your country, but from the perspective of Menachem Begin, what can you do for your people as well? Thank you very much. <laughs> Questions, comments, yeah. Did he ever reconcile with the British? Um, he did in a certain sense. Um, the British reconciled themselves with Begin. So it was a two-way kind of process. The British became irrelevant for him at a certain time. He already had, a, he had other angers that were there. By the way, the Germans, I, I think almost until his dying day, he couldn't. But the British were out of it. They had, in, in the UN resolution of 1947, the British had abstained and not opposed the state. So in his view, he could say they were kind of more, had become more or less neutral. By the way, the only reason they abstained is that they thought that the Jewish state wouldn't come about. If they'd known what was going to happen in the vote, they probably would have opposed. But, but that's another point. The, um, the issue is really, um, he, he kind of just relaxed on those um, and he tried, as time went by, to really kind of look, try and look for allies. 
And I think that was the important part. And the fact that he could accept the leader of Egypt as an ally, I think that really shows that as time went by, he had kind of changed some of his early points of view and uh, he had softened quite considerably. Yeah. Any questions? Yeah, please. You began talking about the right wing and the left wing and the right wing militia and the left wing militia. I suspect you're using right wing and left wing very different than we do today. Could you explain that now? So what does it mean to have a right wing militia and a left wing militia? Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. That's important. And I, I should have mentioned this earlier. Right wing and left wing at a certain time in Israel had an economic component. So it means in the early period, left wing was socialist and right wing was capitalist. As time goes by, and particularly after the Six Day War of 1967, right wing increasingly takes on the concept of keeping land, which Israel had, depending on one's political view, either liberated or, con or conquered in the Six Day War. So that's really what, what, what happens in terms of language. At a certain stage, and today in Israeli society, there's almost no difference uh, uh, in terms of economic policy between the left and the right, uh, unlike in the United States. But it, the difference is really very much territory and how you look at the Arab world. To put it more simply, the left wing say there's a possibility of, of um, relinquishing some, or in some cases, some people believe all the territories, and we can get on with the Arabs. The right wing on the extreme say, we can never give up land, we shouldn't have given back Sinai, we certainly shouldn't have given back Gaza, so that's, that's where they say, and essentially, there's absolutely no way of trusting the Arabs. Um, so that's really the extremes of the left and right, and that's as time goes by, is that it becomes a much more land-based concept and not an economic concept. By the way, an additional thing, the right wing tend to be more religious. In terms of right wing voters, they tend to be on the lower socioeconomic realm. The left wing tend to be less religious and they tend to be higher on the socioeconomic realm. So political policy often comes as a result of other components in oneself. It's, not, it's less and less ideology, but it's becoming more economic and social and class and those sort of things. Yeah. When you were saying that um, <clears throat> Begin relaxed about the British and he even softened about the um, Egyptians and developed that relationship with Sadat, do you think that there was something very particular between Sadat and Begin, that it wasn't just, um, that it was two very special men coming together at a very special time, and had there been another leader of Egypt or another leader of Israel at that time, it, it might not have happened? No, no. I, I think you're right. You know, Menachem Begin felt powerful enough, so it's not only the man, it's the moment of politics, the concept that take a risk for peace resonates when you're feeling very, very strong. It doesn't resonate when you're feeling weak. So what happened with Menachem Begin, and your point, I think is very valid. 
Uh, Menachem Begin, 1979, he had already won the 77 election. He had changed the whole picture of who he was in Israeli politics in the mind of the Israeli public. By the way, just, just a point of who he was, if I, I just want to quote um, one, one phenomenon which his, his biographer mentioned, which is very much um, connected. His personal biographer, Shilon, wrote an excellent book. Not since the days of Ben-Gurion had a leader been so loved. The victory of 1977 breathed new life into Begin. So it very much is, is part of what you're saying. So he had been buoyed by this new situation that he was in, definitely felt loved by the population, and Anwar Sadat, who had come after Nasser, was interesting, because Anwar Sadat came into power very, very weak. But Anwar Sadat looked at what had happened, and he understood that the Yom Kippur War of 1973, which the Israelis regard as an Israeli victory, in Egyptian philosophy, that war um, is an Egyptian victory. So both of them come to the table, in a sense, feeling a great deal of confidence. Both men suffered. Begin for the reason I spoke. Anwar Sadat clearly, because he was assassinated a few years later. So that's really what we're finding, and it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting point that it is the people at a particular moment, partly to do with people and partly to the events of a country. I think there's a correlation of that. Maybe just one or two questions. Thank you. To what extent does Begin's legacy have an influence, if any, on Netanyahu and his relationships, his family's relationships with Jabotinsky and how that interplayed. And is he following the legacy or does he have nothing to do with it? Excellent. Netanyahu claims that he is a follower of Menachem Begin. Benny Begin, Menachem Begin's son, says Netanyahu is nothing like my father. My father was a legalistic man and modest. Netanyahu doesn't care about law, and modesty is not his strong point. <laughs> so it's very interesting who you talk about, but Netanyahu is very, very much tried, and you're exactly correct. Netanyahu's father was a lover of Jabotinsky, so Netanyahu has played the game. But within the, there's an old school of Likudnikim who are very... Uh, devoted to Menachem Begin, uh, someone by the name of Dan Mary Dor and people like that, they've all essentially looked at Netanyahu as the antithesis of what Menachem Begin was. And uh, it's an interesting point because uh, for the opposition parties, you don't, when you want to sort of say something about Netanyahu, if you take someone who used to support Netanyahu and now disagrees with him, your argument is more effective. So Benny Begin is much quoted. He's out of politics now, but he is totally furious uh, with Netanyahu, and he says, not like my dad. So that's what he essentially says. Thanks very much. Actually, we're not quite done. Because uh, there were three issues uh, that I wanted you to address. The first one, real quick, is that uh, Ben-Gurion came from Poland as well, yet he 
developed a completely different uh, philosophy. How come he saw the world so differently than Begin? Number two, your handouts. What is in there that's significant that people should know? And number three is, my, my, from what I've read, um, Begin came into power because of the 73 war and it's shocking, you know, the, the shock of 73 war and society and that catapulted him into power. So I want you to comment on that and then we can be done. Okay. So you're right about the 73 war. When I spoke about the disillusionment in the Labour Party, you know, I kind of didn't, I should have gone on further. The disillusionment of the Labour Party was, among other things, the way the war had developed. So you're right, and I, I should have uh, carried on that a little... Uh, in the museum for, you know, a little bit more, sorry? That, that, that is very much in the museum. In the museum, that, that's right, that's right. You, you see that, that definitely uh, comes up in a, in a, in a very clear way. Uh, just in terms of the, the document, uh, it's... Um, Avi Shilon, who wrote the, uh, the, the biography also, uh, Avi Shilon, Menachem Begin, A Life, 2012. I, I define it as an exceptionally good analysis. Um, when this book came out in 2012, there had been a lot of literature about Begin, but it had all been love literature. How Begin was a man with no faults. That's what you often do when you want to try and take someone out of, of you know, you want to rewrite history in a certain sense. But, but Avi Shalom in 2012 um, is, is already at a different stage, and, uh, and, and that, that book is, is very, very good. Uh, a, a very readable book, by the way, is by Danny Gordas. He's, he's quite well-known. Danny Gordas is a, a well-known uh, writer. Uh, Menachem Begin, The Battle for Israel's Soul. Danny Gordas writes a kind of an emotive history book. So I think it's a very interesting source if you're trying to get into the, the kind of the more feeling part of who Begin is. It's, it's a, good, a good book at the same time. Um, the, I, I mentioned here Begin's two other works, Revolt 1951, and I said White Knights was the second book, my first book, but I'm sorry, it was the second book. He wrote, that was published in 1957. The great problem of Menachem Begin is that he said he was going to write an autobiography and he never did. And the reason he never did was that when he was about, he should have at that time when he resigned from politics and he should have then written his autobiography, he was so unimpressed with what he had done that he felt that he could actually not contribute to anything. It was a totally, in a totally depressed uh, kind of situation, which was awful. You asked a third question, and I'm sorry, that was... Ben-Gurion was also from Poland. Sorry, good, good. Ben-Gurion, thank you, sorry. Good. Ben-Gurion came to Palestine in 1906. So before... Totally different. So Poland had not yet recreated. It hadn't gone through its xenophobic period, and therefore it's a totally different kind of Poland because it's not Poland at that time. So that's a good question, and, and uh, that's what it is. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you very much. So uh, hopefully we'll see you here tomorrow at our lunch program. Have a good evening. <laughs>